0: Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. I'm Alexia, and I am the Early Intervention and Audiology Assistant at Child's Voice. My favorite thing about Child's Voice is watching the kids' speech progress throughout the school year. We are happy to announce that our annual golf event is returning to the outdoors. Join us for our golf outing on Tuesday, June 8th at Arrowhead Golf Club, located at 25W151 Butterfield Road in Wheaton. Help a child with hearing loss to listen, to speak, and to succeed, all while having a great time on the course. Individual and foursome tickets include all golf fees, carts, box lunches on the cart, drinks, refreshments on the course, alumni stories, and a reception. A silent auction opens on June 1st. You can register at childsvoice.org. We're also seeking sponsors and kind donations for our silent auction and volunteers. Have a great day on the course and help us celebrate 25 years of changing the lives of children across the greater Chicago area. And now, to start the show.
1: Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with professionals who serve them. I'm Haley Gubbins, and I'm one of the new co-hosts. And I'm Wendy Dieters. Today
2: on the show, we talk to Dr. Mary Beth Lartz. Dr. Lartz is Professor Emerita at Illinois State University in the deaf and hard of hearing program. She has a bachelor's of science and a master's of arts in deaf education from the University of Texas at Austin and a PhD in early childhood special education from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is also the principal investigator and director of multiple U.S. Department of Education personnel training grants. Dr. Lartz has trained hundreds of deaf educators at Illinois State University. She's an incredible wealth of knowledge, and we are so excited to
3: be talking with her today. Dr. Larch, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Wendy. It's so fun because the two people that are also on with us uh, were students of mine. And then of course, Wendy, you and I have been teaching together for many years, working together at ISU. So it's fun seeing everybody again.
1: It's really good to see you too. I'm very excited. So before we jump into our main discussion, we like asking our guests every week for a story from the past week. It could be anything, something cute, something funny, something heartwarming. Does anything come to mind?
3: Yes, actually. I got my COVID vaccine today, my first one. And actually, I had spent close to two hours trying to get one. And this morning I was doing that, and I signed up in Springfield, Illinois, because I got on and I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm driving down there tomorrow. And then this afternoon in the car, I get a call from my local Walgreens. I forgot I had put my name on there saying, hey, can you come in today at 3? We have a cancellation. That was my excitement for today. I, both my husband and I got our first COVID vaccine shots at 3 p.m. today. Yay. Very <laughs> That's awesome. Exciting. So you didn't have to go to Springfield? No. So uh, we were ready to go. I said, okay, instead of date night, we're going to have date morning and drive to Springfield and get our shots and go out to eat somewhere and sit in the car if we can't go into the restaurant. But now it's worked out perfectly. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome.
2: Good. Oh, we're excited for you. Very exciting. So we want to kind of start at the beginning You have such a rich career in deaf education, so we're gonna start like at how you personally got started in deaf ed.
3: Yes, well, I was so fortunate to literally be born into it because my mother's parents were both deaf and my mother was an only child, so she was a CODA and she is hearing. My mother now is 92, so this was a very long time ago. And my grandmother lived in the same Texas town as us, and we saw her almost every day. And after she had a stroke when she was 80, she moved in with us. And so I saw her every day growing up, you know, every single day until she passed away when I was a junior in high school. And my grandparents both used sign language to communicate, and so did my mother, and my grandparents were very active in the deaf club in our town at that time because we had no social media and no computers and no phones and anything like that many adults who were deaf they would come together in these deaf clubs they called i mean that's what they always called it now we don't have that as much because people can connect in so many other ways but when I was growing up, like almost every weekend, my grandmother was involved with Deaf Club. And once a month, it was a really big deal. And we would go to a lot of these things. And so it was a treasured experience. They would play dominoes, and they would have business meetings, and they would decide what events they were going to have. And it was just a beautiful thing. And my mom was involved, and I was involved. And so I had a very beautiful experience growing up that way and being able to communicate fluently with my grandparents and my grandmother, actually, because my grandfather died much earlier. And then my mother had also been a teacher of the deaf for two years at the Oklahoma School for the Deaf, because at that time it was during World War II, and most all deaf children were educated at state schools for the deaf at that time. And my mother was drafted as a 19-year-old to be a teacher because most of the teachers at that time at the schools for the deaf were male CODAs, and they were fluent in sign, and they would teach. That was pretty much the whole teaching staff were these hearing men that were sons of deaf parents, and they all had to go to war, so they were all drafted for World War II. So Almost anyone who knew sign was just, hey, do you want to be a teacher? And mom took like three classes, and then she was a teacher for two years during the war. My grandparents, um, my grandfather was a house parent at the Oklahoma School for the Deaf, and they both went to the Texas School for the Deaf. That's where my grandparents met. So I've always just been around it. And then when I went to college, I'm kind of on that cusp where... You could either be a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. And we were just kind of moving into, hey, if you want to work in business, you have to wear like a suit and a bow tie and try to be this power person with some kind of strange outfit. And I remember thinking, you know, I love education and I think I could really be good at this because I'm not freaking out about it like a lot of people are trying to figure out what to do. So that's truly how I got into it. And then it was very interesting because I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I did almost all of my practicum and student teaching at the Texas School for the Deaf. And so It just came full circle because that's where my grandparents had met. So I had that great experience growing up and learning everything I could. At that time, I thought I was just participating, but I realize now that it was setting the foundation for the rest of my professional life.
1: That's such a rich way to get into it. That is not at all how I got into it, but it's so cool to hear how it started with your grandparents and then it was your mom and how that move through generations. So when you started in the deaf education field at this time, what did it look like? When did it start to change into what it is now? Have you seen a drastic change from when you started in the deaf education field?
3: Well, I think for me, I had such a limited scope of deaf education because of growing up. And then when I went to the University of Texas, It was all signing program, we did everything at the Texas School for the Deaf. So I had a very small lens of what deaf education looked like, and I just assumed that that was deaf education. And I had heard about LSL schools, of course at that time called oral schools, but both my mother and grandmother and many of my grandmother's friends Because the way technology was back then, and we didn't have what we have now, they had some very negative experiences. And my mother, who was always signing, because her parents both signed, when she was a teacher, at that point, the schools for the deaf were not signing when my mother was a teacher. But my mother would say at night, they would all go into the dorm rooms and everybody was signing. And so I had this kind of a warped sense of sign is good and everything else is bad. And I I know it was because those were their perceptions and their experiences, but it was also at a time when my grandmother was born deaf. She didn't go to school until she was nine years old because at that time there was only the schools for the deaf and we were living five hours from the school for the deaf And so they'd have to put my grandmother on a train. I I mean, it's just beyond how anybody got educated. And so I just had a beautiful view, but my view was very limited. And so when I started at ISU, ISU had been primarily what they called an oral program, and then total communication came on the scene. And so in the early 70s at ISU at the laboratory schools, everything switched to total communication programming. So when I started in the early 80s, how it was set up was if you could not be in the classroom and you were not able to learn through listening and spoken language only, and lots of children in there that were hard of hearing or they had late developing hearing loss, they actually had separate classrooms. They had the signing and then they had for the children that did not need sign support. And the program was huge, because in those days, in Illinois and in many states, we had these huge regional day schools for the deaf, day programs, where there would be the low-incidence cooperative that had 400 students who were deaf and hard of hearing. Hensdale South High School had 200-and-something kids with hearing loss. And so you had this huge critical mass and at one location. So when I came there, I was like, wow, some kids with hearing loss are not signing. And, you know, I begin to learn a little bit more. But truly, the program was pretty much set that it was a signing program. And we didn't really look beyond that. And the programs were very large. Oh, Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, there was such a big need for that. I mean, at that time
2: in the 80s, cochlear implants were, what, 10 years old and big and boxy and didn't deliver really good access to sound. So that's what was needed at the time. I think about when my parents were in school. My dad went to Bell in Chicago and Lane Tech, and when he describes to me what his schooling was like, it's exactly like you were saying. Everyone just sort of had to be put together because it was... That was the only way.
0: Yes, so it's interesting. Yes. it's
2: fascinating, I think, how things have evolved. And it's so cool that you've been able to see the evolution of how deaf ed has changed. You skipped over one
3: little part, though. When did you go to U of I? I was teaching in Texas at a regional day school for the deaf right outside of Dallas, the Mesquite Regional Day School for the Deaf. And we had a whole wing. There was 15 teachers of the deaf, and we also housed eight itinerant teachers. I mean, I never really saw them, but they had their offices and stuff, and So I taught there and then we relocated to Bloomington, Illinois, because my husband is from here and he was taking over the family business. So we relocated here and I thought I was going to work at the lab school in the deaf education program. And when I got here, that didn't really pan out. And so I started substitute teaching there right away and substitute taught at the lab school And I even did some student-teacher supervision and things at ISU and realized that I really loved working at the university level and with college students, especially in teacher training. And so I decided to go back. So I commuted over and stayed in an apartment a couple of nights and a week and did that and got my doctorate because I figured that's pretty much the only way I was going to be able to stay full-time at ISU. And so I'm so glad I did that. Because then we're so glad the door. you did that. Oh, thank you. So I'm that opened so the glad. door for me to take that tenure line position. I'd been working there since 1983, but I took the tenure line position in, 89, in 1989.
1: Well, I'm glad it worked out because I got to experience you as a teacher, and it was just the best experience. You were so in the middle and it was so great to get both perspective. I know that you mentioned like you came from a signing program, but then when I was in the program a couple years ago, you really focused on oral. And it was just such a great way to kind of get this whole worldly rounded look at deaf education. And I know that I'm not the only student that feels that way. And so in all of our experiences, if we talk about Dr. Lartz or we talk to somebody who graduated or was in your class, everybody says, I love Lartz. I love Lartz. How do you form such a lasting connection with these students? You know, every time I call you or email you, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad to hear from you. How do you do it? I mean, you've taught hundreds of students. You've seen hundreds of people go through the program.
3: Well, we really do have the best students. I mean, at ISU Deaf Ed, it's like the best students. So that's one thing. The students are always great. And then the other thing is I've had the beauty and luxury of being able to supervise all the students in the language practicum class. And so I feel like the reason we develop such relationships is I feel like I get to be a co-teacher. I mean, we're really doing it together because I'm sitting on the floor of the preschool or I'm sitting at the kidney-shaped table in the elementary school or I'm sitting in the back of the room at the high school and I'm just watching all of you teach. And the other thing is, all of the students have been in my office going over their lesson plans and we've been racking our brains together trying to figure out how can we engage this student in eighth grade who doesn't want to do anything. And I just felt like the students let me be part of it. So I still felt like I was the teacher. And so every time I'd go in the classroom, I kind of felt like this is partly mine too. And I got to share that with the students and working side by side to develop language, I really cannot imagine anything more important or more rewarding than doing that. Plus, I can't remember anything except I can remember pretty much everybody's junior practicum assignment and whatever their unit was. I mean, I don't know why, but I guess because we all just lived and breathed it through those lesson plans. And so I would go in to the classrooms and together we would be sitting and watching the students and we would all just be saying, we got to get the language. We got to get the language. And we did. I mean, we pulled that language. I don't know how many times we would stay long and stay after. And then I would start clapping in the back of the room. And sometimes tears were shed. (laughs) I mean, it was just very emotional because this was their first practicum. And... I think they saw the possibilities and their role in developing language, which is the highest calling, I believe.
2: I think that's such a unique perspective to have from a professor. And not all professors, in my experience, very few interact with their students in this way. Usually, the professor is standing up in front of a room lecturing and not really forming connections with people. I didn't have the pleasure of being one of your students, but it sounds like you really are just right there with them, learning with them and being so open and so excited about what you're doing that that's probably just one of the ways that you form those really strong connections with your students.
3: Yeah, it was wonderful. They would let me into this sacred space of engaging with a student and developing language having language that was not there when they started. It was fabulous. I'll probably start crying as I think about it because I really do miss that. I really, really miss that. Well, you've
2: painted this beautiful picture of what deaf education is and what becoming a deaf educator is, but unfortunately there aren't deaf ed programs at every university and we see them sort of dwindling. How is ISU different? Why has the deaf ed program stayed so strong there? Why is this changing in the country?
3: That's a two-part question, sorry. Well, one thing I did want to say is, you know, I told you that I had this very small scope of deaf education. What was there was accurate. It was happening. Kids were learning. Parents and children had wonderful relationships. And it was all through sign language. And that was a great model and still is. And many students and families are using sign language, and many families are choosing sign language as part of an outcome, an educational outcome. But I had been at ISU probably about 15 or 16 years, and I had gone and learned as much as I could about implants, and I had begun on that, but I was just learning. I wasn't really doing anything to change the program. I mean, I was an assistant professor. But I will tell you what happened. About 20 years ago, a woman called me on the phone, a parent, and asked me, why are you not preparing teachers to work with children who are not going to sign? And she told me this story about her son, who was deaf, and he was going to what then we called an oral school, and we now call listening and spoken language, and She had not known about that opportunity either. And she just laid it out on the phone. And I hung up the phone and I was just shaking. And I thought to myself, you know, at ISU we pride ourselves on preparing people to teach across the state of Illinois. But I realized that we were preparing them to teach across the state in signing programs. And that woman started something so... Over the next couple of years, I began to work with the Moog School and said, we need to know what is going on in this oral program, in in oral education, because it's getting a bad rap. This woman called me and said, why are you not preparing for this group of kids? So I began, and I actually, one of my first sabbaticals I did where I would go to Moog School every Wednesday and spend Wednesday night there and come back Thursday afternoon after that day had finished. And Karen Stein and Julia Bedenstein came, oh, I bet they came at least once every three weeks to ISU and would work with us. They would guest lecture. They would teach me everything I could learn. And Sharon Litchfield was my amazing coworker at that time. And Lori Sexton, and we would just sit and try to learn because we knew it was a skill set that had to be developed, and we had to get some experiences. And so I really feel like over the past 20 years is when we really began to try to develop and not just have like one observation or like read an article about it, but I mean actually get in these classrooms. And so that was a big change too, a real big change. So then the second part, Wendy, I believe that ISU is so strong because, first of all, we were large. We've always been in the top like three to four in the nation. Large, robust enrollment. So that really helps. But also our department respects and values the deaf ed program. And I don't believe that they would ever let it go. And we had such continuity. I mean, people come into the Deaf Head program and they don't leave until they die or they retire because they're going to be 65. We have a wonderful reputation across the state and the nation because many, many of our students fan out and they're all over the state. We've got down far, far south all the way way north and all places in between where our grads are. We're living on our reputation and we're tough and we don't put out anybody unless they're good. And that makes for painful experiences and talks and stuff sometimes. But I believe that the two grads here on this program today will say that it was tough, but it was good. You want to get out feeling like you are ready and skilled and are worthy of being in this profession.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a hard program, but I picked deaf ed at ISU on a whim. I saw it and I was like, I'm going to apply. I can always change it if I don't like it. And then I had a couple classes and then I met you. And I think your passion for language and your passion for change and teacher prep just kind of shines through what you do. And so once you're in it, you're in it. And it was inviting and it was almost contagious. I think there's a video of you going, language, language, because you were just so excited. And it just showed how passionate you were. And I think all of the grads that do come out from that program feel the same way because we had you as such a great role model. And so to kind of go off of that, what has changed the most in your 37 years plus in this field? Because your views on communication modality kind of ranges. You started in that sign, and then you kind of shifted to this listening and spoken language. And that's super admirable, and you're very open-minded about it. So where does that come from, and how did that change over the 37 plus years in the field?
3: Well, I think a lot of it, started with that woman who called me 20 years ago. And I had gotten my doctorate early childhood special ed, I had my own children. But until I really began to explore and feel that woman's pain and need, I realized I've been picking what's going to happen to all of these children, I've been promoting what's going to happen. So we began to say, okay, we want to provide a lot of information on as many modalities and languages as we can. And so there's a lot of cued speech information that comes through. We've done visits down there. We've just tried to do a lot of education on the different systems and then having respect and value and trying to make the perspective be, what are the parents wanting? What will the parents use? How can we develop these relationships, communicative relationships between families and their children? And so then that just guides you. If this family says we want to do American Sign Language, this family says we want to do cute speech, this family, then we have a right and an obligation to show. Now, we can't be in-depth experts at all of those but I feel like we can be a surface level for most of them and in-depth for wherever you can get the practicum and then the teachers are going to be on their own to know more and I mean both of you had experiences and ended up at child's voice but you also had other experiences teaching experiences and practicum and I just feel like that's the way we need to go because we need to honor the parents. And then that brings me into all the work that Wendy and I did on the grants that ISU was awarded. And then our good friend, Tracy Mann, that helped us out. We were a great team, if I do say so myself. And again, I was learning because I had never actually done early intervention. And so Wendy, the queen of early intervention, and Tracy, we just, it was hard. We had high expectations and we tried to share everything. I mean it was beautiful and I think that ISU was continually awarded those grants because we put out quality and we put out a lot of people into the early intervention system and deaf and hard of hearing The developmental therapist hearing, there is such a shortage. Even now, after all of the professionals we've put out, there's still a shortage. But before we had our grants, I mean, Wendy can attest, there was like a handful of people that were really doing it consistently. And that meant children were on the waiting list with their language just sitting out in the front step, and they had no way to access it because the parents didn't understand it, you know? To
2: put it into perspective for everyone, just to give a little background, the grants that Mary Beth is describing, so she created these amazing teacher preparation programs through the Department of Ed, got these incredible grants to train speech-language pathologists, audiologists, and teachers of the deaf to work in early intervention with children with hearing loss with a focus on listening and spoken language. And I don't know all of the work that went into how you created those. I know it was immense. But after sort of taking the pulse of Illinois and what services are needed, you guys determined that there was this huge gap in services and that the providers weren't there. So you were awarded these really incredible grants. So almost all of the people that we had as students in those programs were teachers in public schools. And then we're learning these skills for early intervention. And as Tracy always talked about, the paradigm shift, we're sort of moving from more of a total communication teaching style to working in early intervention using listening and spoken language if that's what the parent chose. Because they kind of already had that good TC background. We had to teach early intervention and we had to teach listening and spoken language. And it was really hard for some of the students, but you again did such a nice job of being open and allowing that paradigm shift to develop over time and have just like really good open conversations. What do you think allowed you to do that, to continue growing like that as a professional who is, you at that point were already teaching for what, 25 30 years. So how do you do that? How do we, as we age and get into our careers, continue
3: to be open to growing? Well, I think I just begin to see that we were preparing students. At ISU, they would come and the teaching licensure is from three to 21. And like we all know now, three, and you might as well be 80 if you're not getting good professional input. And education and if the parents don't know anything. And so I was like, what's happening from birth to three? So I put together a lot of focus groups around the state. And we talked to people and the supervisors were all saying, hey, families are coming to us saying, we need some listening and spoken language programming. And then the teachers were like, yeah, we're getting all like implants. And we never had any experience with that when we were at ISU, or anywhere. We didn't have the skills, really. And still today, we have very limited practicum sites that give us the full depth of the different communication modes. And so I just felt like there is such a need. And again, the woman from 20 years ago, I kept hearing her in my mind and saying, okay, we have got to get to that birth to three gap. And I think that's how it started, and I think we had such good statistics from all those focus groups and the surveys. That kind of really helped write that first grant, and then once they saw how many people we were putting through and how highly it was rated, it made it easier to get the subsequent ones. A lot of people say they have a midlife crisis. I had a midlife, but it was the most exciting midlife crisis ever because it was a professional midlife crisis. And so finally, I felt like once and for all, we're actually meeting birth to 21. If you were enrolled in that grant and got that special birth to three, I just felt like, okay, I've done as much as I can to meet all that age range let's just hope we can keep it going. You know, we just have to keep people wanting to learn and wanting to do things. So
1: I think and I've texted you a couple times
3: throughout the years about that
1: grant. And I know that there's been some pushback from the state. So I was really sad. One of these days, one of these days, I'll get in there. Because yeah, I definitely, we're seeing it now, you know, I teach those three year olds. And sometimes it's like, Oh, but if we would have just been able to do yeah. a little bit more like when they were younger and I think that birth to three is so important and Wendy I yes. know you you do so yeah, much there was that
3: one year Haley when we didn't have funding and that was I think would have been the ideal year for you but there's a grant running right now that it's actually preparing DTH developmental therapist hearing and developmental therapist vision with speech pathology because The federal government, the Department of Ed is doing everything interdisciplinary now. So, But those folks were really learning together. I left that when I retired, but the grant is still going on and there'll be another cohort. So that's exciting and that's still going on.
1: Well, yeah, with that, what do you think the future of deaf education looks at? Like you just mentioned that they're trying to be more interdisciplinary, which I think is such a big push right now, especially with the students we see coming in. It's not necessarily just hearing loss or we need to address it in a different way. You know, maybe cultural backgrounds play a role into it. And so what do you think the future of deaf education and teacher preparation programs look like?
3: I hope that We keep the ones that we have. We've lost an alarming number of state teacher preparation programs. I mean, there's 21 states that do not have a single teacher preparation program in deaf education.
2: Why do you think that is? What happened?
3: Well, one of the things, it's very expensive. There's not very many positives from COVID, but One, I think, will be that we are going to realize that we do not have to drive to Champaign, Illinois to do a visit at a school. And I don't have to drive to Wooddale to do a visit to supervise a student, teacher, or a practicum student. And we know that now because of Zoom and how none of us drive anywhere anymore. We do everything through Zoom. So I'm hoping that that's going to cut the supervision bill in half. And that's one of the main things because, you know, deaf ed programs are so spread out. And there's a wonderful thing about children being educated in their home school. That's what many, many parents want. But the downside of that, and only just selfishly, the downside is that then you have to travel miles and miles and miles to go see different students. And so, actually, the transportation was a huge problem. You have a supervisor in Chicago trying to draw, I mean, you just can't see that many people. And also, you know, historically, enrollment has been very low in the sensory disability programs in both vision and deaf. And so, they just don't bring as much money in. Now, we've been fortunate, for the most part at ISU, to have fairly robust enrollment, but I think overall teacher education is down and special education enrollment is down and therefore deaf education enrollment is going to be down. But I do hope that with this possibility to do more remote supervision and remote training that we will be able to build that back up and I'm hoping that maybe other states could even reinstitute their programs. Because actually, Illinois at one point had five deaf ed programs. The U of I in Champaign had a program when I moved here. Stephen Quigley had started a program at the U of I and McMurray, which has been the most recent to go, but there was many programs, and now we're the only one, and we're strong and doing well, but I just really hope that the other states can stop the closures, and then maybe some that don't have any will be able to bring back. I mean, for example, there's no teacher prep program in Iowa, and Wisconsin, Louisiana, they don't have a single deaf ed program. It's just beyond me because we've always had such a strong and with multiple faculty that I can't even imagine not having a program to meet the needs of the children and the families.
2: That's interesting that you're talking about distance learning. I feel like I should point out that you are like the pioneer of distance learning because I am sure you remember the beginning of the grants when we had a cohort, a northern and a southern, and we taught on Google Hangout. It was ridiculous. I wouldn't say it was very smooth, remember but it
3: worked. How you would always have to talk me off the ledge, and you'd be texting me, okay look on the right side of the I didn't even have a Google account. I didn't even know what that was. And Wendy's like we you have to because that's the only way you can get the camera to turn on. And I'm like, "What?" You know, and so yes, think of all the changes just because I had you and Tracy there to like lead me down the way. Thank heavens I've always worked with such collaborative people that we've always brought out the best in each other. I've been so fortunate at ISU. They're just so collaborative and wonderful. Wonderful place to work.
2: I think the lesson in that is like you created this thing with a vision that I think this could work. I think this could happen. And maybe all the details weren't there. And maybe, you know, we spent a lot of money on technology. Whereas today, all you need is a phone. But you put it out there and you created this thing without every single detail, and it still worked. So I feel like there's a really valuable lesson in that for other educators.
3: You know, that's a really good point because, you know, that adage of you build the plane while you're flying it. And I definitely think we were doing that with the grants and with the beginnings to look into starting practicum sites for LSL placements and things. But I guess my thing is I want to encourage people I had never even been in early intervention. I had a lot of training. I mean, I had my doctorate, so I worked with tons of families and kids through college and through my doctoral program, but I had never knocked on the door and said, I'm here to work with your family. And if I hadn't had Wendy and Tracy to do that, they had actually been in the trenches. So yes, I encourage people, have the dream, see the need, And then go find people to work with. Otherwise, if we all try to do it by ourselves, we're never going to get anything done. But when we come together, we can build the plane while we're flying it. And we did. I didn't know anything about technology. Y'all knew all of that. So yeah, that's a great thing, Wendy, to remind us of that we need to just have that vision and then go find the people to work with to make that happen.
2: Yeah, and then the people need to trust... The person flying the plane. So luckily we had you to <laughs> fly the plane as we were building it.
3: Yeah, I had like three co-pilots and I would go, I'm going on a break. And the co-pilots were like taking over. But yeah, that was great times.
1: I feel like that's the nature of deaf ed though, or early intervention. Let's try it. Let's get a group of us who have UF have specialties in this area. I have specialties in this area. Let's figure it out. And so, yeah. yeah, I just feel like that's the nature of what we do. And we always do it because we know it's best for the kid. We know it's best for the family. And you got to trust the process.
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I love how I feel like more in deaf ed, maybe other places, but we're not like competitive. And I know more than you. And I don't want to tell you that. I mean, we pretty much lay out and say, I don't know that much about autism. But I've got several children, I think, that are coming through that may have hearing loss and autism, and I need to know more about that. There's always going to be somebody that knows something about what you're interested in, and it's just a matter of knocking on the door or texting or calling. And I find that when we're all focused on what we want, and that is to improve the language and literacy skills for all of our students, then people are willing to work with other people because most people in our field want that more than anything. So that's good. It's a great model. I think I cut off part
2: of Haley's question of where you think the field of deaf ed is going. You talked about distance learning. What else do you think is going to change over the next 5, 10, 20 years in deaf education?
3: Well, I know one thing that I hope changes. I know one of the questions that was on the email was, what are some of the real challenges for teaching at the university level. And one of them is I would talk about best practice and what we need to do to develop language and the best approaches, evidence-based. But then we send them out and depending on where they end up for practicum or for student teaching, they may not be seeing that in practice. And I just feel like there's many children that are underserved for a variety of reasons. They don't know what is available and what is best practice, the financial situations or the parents are unsure, whatever, a myriad of reasons. But that has always been a challenge. And how can we bring everyone along so that everyone has the vision and doesn't give up on the vision? So... That's something that's always been in the back of my mind. How can we make sure that everybody has all of the information and can use that in their education with children?
1: That's interesting that you say that because I'm currently getting my master's through ISU right now. And one of the biggest issues I'm running into is evidence-based practices for children with hearing loss, and especially children with hearing loss and additional needs. That has been the biggest roadblock for me to, to carry out all of this research. And I love that you said that, because yes, as an educator, I'm still a young one, you know, this is only year four, but I don't see it, or I don't know, or I don't know how to even start. And so that is a wonderful thing to put focus on, because I definitely think it's needed in our field, and I hope that that becomes more common practice to look for evidence-based practice and have that research background.
3: Yes. And that has always been a problem with this low incidence disabilities is we just don't have the research and the evidence because our numbers are so small and we're so spread out that it's hard to have some of that. But you, Haley, are getting in multiple disabilities and Tess is doing something with a focus on multiple disabilities. We just need to find our people. We need to go to our state conferences, we need to do podcasts like this, we need to share the word because there's other people out there that can also help with this. I'm hoping that we'll see some good research come from this younger generation of teachers coming up that know we have to get the evidence so that we can use these strategies efficiently and appropriately with our students.
2: Yeah, I think your analogy of flying the plane as we're building it is a really good one for all of deaf education because the technology has moved so quickly and we've been able to keep up. We know what works and then we have to work backwards to provide the evidence for that, which is not the way science should work, as we all know. But we really haven't had another choice and there are so many variables. And like you said, the numbers are so low. I think that's something we're finding. We're part of the option schools, the listening and spoken language data repository that's now housed at the University of Miami. And we're hoping that there's some really good research that's going to come out of all of that. But something like that had to be built in order to aggregate the data from across the country, because like you said, we're not big enough. So hopefully, as technology continues to improve distance learning and communicating across the country is, like you said, maybe one of the positive things that comes out of COVID, maybe we'll see some really great research coming out of that collaborative too.
3: Well, and also, you teachers probably have some good ideas that have worked and you're passionate about something. And I feel like now with all of the different technology and Zoom and all these podcasts, that if you're passionate about something and you've studied and you've got a database of some kind, it's not like you're saying, oh, let's try this, but you've really looked at it. I bet there's 10 other people in Illinois that are also interested in it. So I visualize maybe these small little tutorials or, I mean, I think gone are the days where we're gonna sit for three hours, two times a week. And I think we're moving away from that. I think it's gonna have to be smaller chunks from people that are passionate and knowledgeable about a specific practice in deaf education, and then get other people. And I think that's going to be a great way. And I mean, you're already doing it with these podcasts, I think. And I think you could take some of your listeners and send some things out and say, hey, we're going to do a mini lesson on or a mini lecture on working with children with autism and something." Because if you've got the passion and you've got the knowledge, then you just need to find the people to work with. So I feel good. You know, a lot of people are gloom and doom because things are closing, but I feel like we're going to be able to take advantage of all of this online and the passion that still exists. The passion has not gone away. The desire for our students to have the best possible outcomes have not gone away. So we just need to Find a group of people to work together. And it can be a small group. So that's what I'd like to really encourage people with is to state your passion, as they say at ISU all the time, state your passion, and then find a few people to do it with, you know, some accountability partners and do it. Don't wait anymore. It's kind of like, I'm going to buy a treadmill and six months goes by and I'm going to buy just buy the darn treadmill and start. Just do it. Is there any one last piece of advice and then we can wrap up? I don't know what my big piece of advice is other than what I've been saying. I'm just realizing it's just finding a few people that are as passionate and knowledgeable about that area because that's the only way real change is going to happen. I don't think we can wait for the school districts to come up with something or with the federal government to come up with a new idea, disability category. I mean, I think we're just going to have to start doing some things on our own and solving the problems ourselves using evidence and research and passion and knowledge. I mean, I'm not suggesting to just go off and do something wild and crazy without any kind of research backing, but I just think we can't wait for the textbook to come out about X, Y, and Z if we have those students in our classes right now. We need to start doing something now. And we all know the most important thing is language and communication. So I just visualize a bunch of people sitting at a table and there's a little circle in the middle that says language. And then we have to start figuring out, okay, with this particular student or this particular group of students, how do we get that? And then be building that plane as we're flying it every day, just doing it. So I don't really have any other advice other than that.
2: Well, that's pretty fantastic and Pretty profound. Yeah, it's pretty profound
3: what you just said. Well, don't you think it's true? I just realized all the classes you had at ISU and I've taught, it really comes down to you having a problem you need to solve so that your student can develop language and communication. And how do you do that? Certainly, you're going to read textbooks and you're going to watch podcasts and listen to lectures about it. But it really comes down to what you are passionate about, and what students you want to solve a problem for.
2: Well, I think that's a really great piece of advice to end on. We've learned so much from you, Mary Beth, and we're really excited to have all of our listeners learn from you as well. Hope a lot of them, I'm sure, are your former students, but we hope that, you know, even more people now have the opportunity to have learned from you, and we're really grateful for
3: that. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us for another episode of All Ears at Child's Voice. Be sure to join us for our next episode. We release episodes once monthly.
2: You can follow us and this podcast on our new Instagram with the handle
1: at Child's Voice Podcast. Make sure you check it out. It's really great. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us an email at podcast at childsvoice.org, and you can find episodes, show notes, and archived episodes at our Child's Voice website, childsvoice.org.
2: And if you're interested in learning more about Child's Voice, we're on Facebook as well as Twitter with the handle at childs underscore voice, no apostrophe.
1: Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to, so don't miss any episodes. As always, we appreciate your feedback, so please send us an email or voice memo at podcasts at childsvoice.org. If you are interested in supporting Child's Voice and programs like this one, please visit us at childsvoice.org and click on the Donate Now button.